Um, when I think about our church this way, I'm real, it reminds me of Paul talking to one of the churches that he was interacting with in the New Testament. And so that church was in a city called Thessalonica. And we actually, a few months ago, we did a series on First and Second Thessalonians, and we were talking about living in light of Christ's return, but we were mainly focusing on the passages that were looking toward the future. Um, but now I, I want to do something different, go back and, and pick up a few verses that we missed as we went through that. And here's Paul bragging on this church. Um, he loves them. He's bragging on them. Here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, starting in verse 2. And I think this is like page 1184 or something like that if you're, if you're using one of the Bibles on the chair rack in front of you. He says, he's writing them. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. And he doesn't stop there. He actually goes on and on. He praises them for receiving the word, the gospel, with joy. He praises them for being imitators of him, but more importantly, imitators of Jesus. He goes on to talk about how they've become an example as a church to other churches in the region that other churches are talking about what the great job they are doing as they reach out to other people. So he's doing all this because the gospel is ringing out from them, he says. And I feel that same way about you. Um, we, we have a vibrant ministry, but every once in a while we think, hey, we could kick this into another level uh, if, if we had some help and, and we have enough people that, that come together and say, yeah, let's do that. That makes it work. So we're excited about the next three years. But it's not just to reach people here in Northwest Ohio, and we do want to do that, but we also help churches that aren't a part of us. But beyond that, we also ring out the gospel to groups of people in um, Thailand, different tribes, and Myanmar, uh, different people groups, and same thing in the Philippines. We have, diff we have several missionaries in the Philippines, some of them dealing with dip different kind of tribal background people with separate languages, although they have common trade language. You know, we're, we do this, we have two different uh, missionaries we support in Japan. Uh, we help in Africa. We're just all these things are where we're ringing out with the gospel and you guys are making that possible as we come together and do something called church in Fremont, Ohio. And I just want to thank you for that. Before we jump into the text, which we just read from the beginning of the letter, and I'm going to bounce to the end of the letter where he gives some instruction. And before we get to that, I just want to give you the historical context. You may remember this from several months ago when we were teaching on these two books, First and Second Thessalonians. But here, Paul has converted to Christianity. He was a guy who was actually uh, killing Christians. He gets converted, and then he starts evangelizing Jewish people in Asia Minor. He goes up into Turkey. He's up in this area. And then God calls him to cross over into Europe. He does that. He hits a town called Philippi, and then the second town he hits is called Thessalonica. It says when he got there, and you can read about this in Acts, but it says when he got there, 
uh, people started believing. First of all, the Jewish people that were in the synagogue, many of them came to put their faith in Christ. But it wasn't only that. Paul says there were also, or Luke's telling us this, that there was also uh, Gentiles that put their faith in Christ in Thessalonica. And prominent women in the city were putting their faith in Christ. So he's getting a lot of traction, and all of a sudden things are really going. People are coming to Christ, but then weeks later, all of a sudden there's opposition, which is not unusual. So opposition arises. A lot of people don't like what's happening because they're no longer worshiping false idols, and that's affecting some stuff. And so they don't like that. And so the the followers of Christ then, because Paul's an outsider, they smuggle him out of there, and then they go on and deal with it. Paul later on goes to some other cities. He ends up in Corinth. While he's there, he sends Timothy to go check on these people. I mean, he's heard some stuff, but he's not sure how they're doing, if they're even surviving, if they've even lived, if they've turned from the faith. He sends them. And then Timothy comes back with a glowing report that is, they're just they're thriving, they're doing amazing, even though there's hardships, even though they're being persecuted, that they're, they're thriving as a church. And now Paul is writing that church, he's bragging on them at the beginning, and then toward the end, he shifts a little bit. Remember, these are just people that came out of all different lifestyles, just like us, who just started believing when Paul was saying, hey, we've all sinned against God, all of us. Every single one of us, we've, we've all done things that God says is wrong. And then not only that, God, there's one creator God in the universe, and he also happens to be just. He believes in justice. And so even though we don't see justice now everywhere because there's sin in the world, perfect justice is coming, and because of his, God's being just, all wrongs have to be punished. And Paul's explaining to them that that punishment is separation from God. If you keep God at an arm's distance, God will let you do that for eternity. And you will end up in a place called hell. But because God loves us, even though that's the right punishment for all of us, including me, God loves us. And out of God's love for us, he made a way. And it was very costly because of his justice. He allowed his son, his only son, Jesus Christ, to leave heaven, clothe himself in human flesh, and allow himself voluntarily to be tortured to death on the cross. He's the only person who walked the planet that didn't have any sin, and the only one qualified to die for anybody else's sin, and that's exactly what Christ did. And as Paul explained it to those people in Thessalonica, they believed. A lot of them believed. And they put their faith in Christ. And, and putting your faith in Christ, what that means is that you're admitting that you've sinned against God. You have to know that or you don't need the gospel. You don't need Jesus. Admitting that you've sinned against him, believing in Christ, who he is and what he did, that he paid your penalty on the cross. But then once we believe, if we're sincere in our belief, if we're actually trusting in Christ, it will bring into our life change, a desire to follow God. And we don't always do that perfectly, but we will want to follow God. So that's what these people in Thessalonica did. Now, here's Paul writing them. He's heard these good things, but then at the end of his letter, before he closes out, he's telling them some instructive things. Here's what he says. He basically says, it's okay 
to not be okay. Anybody ever hear that? It's okay to not be okay. But he adds something. It's okay to not be okay, but don't stay that way, is what he's saying. It's okay to be okay, but as believers, we don't stay that way. That's what he's saying. And so as he writes them, he's telling us God has a plan for all of us in the church, for all of us who are believers, probably not everybody here is a believer, but all of us who are believers, he has a plan for us to give and receive counsel from other believers. And so that's why we're calling this series The Counselor. The counselor is not the pastor. The counselor is the believer. He's telling us, hey, that we, he has a plan that as we come together in local church, and that's important to God, that he has a plan to give counsel within his church. And here's how he's going to lay out for us. First of all, he's going to let us know that church family is structured. And the reason that I feel like I even have to go over this is I think some people have a a romanticized notion that in the first century when the church just started, that it was, you know, everybody singing kumbaya and there were no leaders and everybody just kind of came together and that's the way it was. That is not what the Bible's saying. Now, if you're thinking there was no super organizational hierarchy like a pope and all that for the first couple of hundred years, you're absolutely correct. There was not. But if you're thinking there was no local leaders in the church, that's wrong. Because everywhere Paul went, he was putting leaders, elders, and pastors to lead the church. He did that. Timothy then would go as a church grew a little bit and follow up and make that happen. We're told that over and over in Scripture. So, and then here's how those men had to be. So there were qualifications to be a leader. And this is, Paul wrote Timothy and, and some others to tell them these qualifications. It goes like this, that the guy that they pick for a leader has to be above reproach, husband to one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not violent, gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must manage his own family well, keep his children under control. He must not be a recent convert and he should have a good reputation with outsiders. So that's kind of a mouthful there. But Thessalonica, just like our church here, had a group of men, a pool of men, that fit those qualifications more than they needed even. And so what Paul would do is select from that pool of men who met those qualifications, leaders in the church. And that's the exact same thing that we've done here at Grace. We have a bunch of men, not all men, but a lot of men who meet these qualifications and some have a desire to lead or whatever, or we just see that they have leadership potential. And so, you know, we select leaders and they're voted on. They have to get a 90% vote from our congregation and then they're affirmed and they come into leadership. So that's, that's kind of how that works. And that's the way it worked sort of in the first century as far as how they pick people based on qualifications. So this is all happening. And now Paul transitions from, hey, there's a structure here, um, to saying this. And a lot of pastors don't talk about this, and because it's, a, it's kind of like, it's a passage, it's, it's easy for us to avoid because it basically says, hey, respect your pastors. So it's really kind of self-serving, you know what I mean? Hey, be good to your pastor, you know, so I love this verse, but, you know, we don't talk about it too much. But so here, here's the way it goes. Uh, in verse 12, here's what he says. Now it's at the end of the book. He's given these instructions. He says, but... We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord, 
and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another, which is kind of interesting when you break it down, because why, why should they be esteemed? Because they have the label pastor? Well, it seems to indicate that we show them esteem because of their labor, diligent labor, or because of their work, because they're doing the work of the ministry. So to the extent they're doing the work of the ministry, you should esteem them. And he's talking about formal leaders here, but we should also respect other leaders in the church that are doing ministry work and serve, for example, at Grace. And, and so, so you're not thinking that I'm trying to slip in some subtle things here going on because I'm, I'm having a problem somewhere, which is not, not the case. Um, I'll just say it out. You guys as a church, you do this very well. Our elder board does this very well. I believe you honor and esteem. Our elders have to meet the same qualifications as anybody who has a title of pastor at Grace at any of our campuses. I think you guys do that very well. And I feel very respected, you know, so there's no hidden message here. Actually, you know, I'll just say this. Grace is our church and our campuses is the most unified church I've ever been in. And I've been here a long time, 30 years. And not only that, it's not only the most unified church I've ever been in. It's the most unified church I've ever heard of. We have this down. So thank you. You do this very well. So this is not a correction. Don't take it that way. Um, So Paul ends by saying we should be peace with one another. Well, why does he say that? Well, because we're all sinners. Sometimes you need a structure, a leadership structure to guarantee the peace, to make sure that's all working out. You have to have some way of solving problems. Then he continues and he says this, church family is structured because of the second point, because we all have issues. Because we all have issues, church family is messy. So we get this, right? You can't even become a believer without knowing that you have issues, sin issues. You can't even become a Christian without getting that, knowing that you're flawed. And so we all have them. We all have issues. Life is messy. All different parts of life are messy. That's why we deal with all these different parts of life. Parenting can be messy. Marriage can be messy. Finances can be messy. Health issues can be messy. Dealing with habitual sin can be really messy. All these things, life's messy, but the church acknowledges that. We don't just kind of wish that away like it doesn't happen. And so we have a plan to deal with that, and that's going to be the third point. But before I get there, I want to throw something else out to you, and this will be maybe a little controversial. Here's a problem that I think we have as a church may have. It's a struggle because there's no great way to deal with this. So we've talked about this for a long time. So I'm just going to clue you in on what we talk about usually over in that room, or there's a smaller room over there. Here it is. We, since COVID, it, you know, we were online and live streaming well before COVID. And then we had a pretty good footprint of feeling like we had a good reach with that. Then COVID came and that was like a lifesaver because we actually, even, even though we locked down for a few weeks, we actually met here the same two services and did two live services. We didn't even do one and just show it the next hour. We just did two. We just kept doing on our platform what we had always done. So that's how we kind of handled COVID. After a few weeks, we opened up and people started trickling back. And, but here's kind of how the chips lay now. We realize now after a couple of years, and, and we think we're beyond the COVID, and so hopefully you feel that way too, and that you shouldn't be staying away because of COVID or anything else, unless it's a, a, something really dire or you're super, super uh, you know, 
high risk about something, you know, that could be. But we're saying, hey, it's over, let's move on. But here's what's happened. Our reach has expanded greatly. How many people listen to our services? That's expanded during these last two years. How many people we have in our auditorium, although we have a good, last service was like packed out, but so I don't know what's going on there. We'll look at that. But the people in the, the people are actually showing up at services. Even though our reach has grown, the people who are coming to church is just under what we had before COVID started. And so that bums us out. And here's why. The Bible's telling us church is important, but what Part of what church is, is actually meeting together. That's what this passage actually is about that we're going to find out here next. The church is about us meeting together. So we feel like, on one hand, we love the reach of live streaming our services. By the way, they're always available later, but there's something about live streaming. We have a lot of people watching us live. But what we're going to do is, starting next Sunday we're going to stop live streaming our first service and just see if that impacts anything. We're going to stop live. So if you're watching and, you know, sometimes if you're watching this service or first service, we're actually canceling live first service, a live stream, in order to encourage people to come to church because there's a bunch of stuff that God wants us to do in church besides learn from the Word of God or hear great praise music and, and worship God. There's more to it than that, and we're going to get to that. So we want that to happen. So we still want to keep second service online because there's shut-ins, but here's what we're trying to accomplish, and who knows if this will work. What we're trying to accomplish is if you're able to come to church, you should come to church. If you're not able to come to church, you're physically not able, we want to live stream out to you but we don't really want it to be convenience. Like I hear stories like this. Well, I got up, I made my toast, got my coffee going, my husband wasn't ready, I turned on the, the TV, we started watching the first service, you know, and then by the time we just, we kind of got caught up in it or whatever, you know, and then we're watching this and then we decide, well, there, now we've already seen it, so we're not gonna go. So we're not going to do that, and we're going to see how, see how that works. And we'll see if that moves the needle or not. But what, we love the reach, but we don't want to encourage people to not do what God says we should be doing. Here I am preaching to the choir, but there's you guys out there too. But anyway, not the choir. So, the, you know, it's two different categories. If you're just doing it for convenience, here's, here's what I'll say to you. Hey, you got up, you're in your pajamas, you don't feel like getting dressed, coming in, just wear the pajamas. <laughs> it's probably more important that you come because God says, make sure they're modest, just wear the pajamas, wear the PJs, bring it on, bring your toast, bring your coffee, hang with us. We've got coffee here, come on. If we need to provide toast, let us know. We'll make it happen. So that's what's going on. So, and, and by the way, if you're live streaming and if you're determined to come next week, there's more room in second service, although we have a good crowd here, than there is in first. So just if that makes a difference. But anyway, we, we hope you come. So we all have issues. Even as a church, we can kind of have an issue. We all have issues. Life is messy. messy. At times we struggle. We all get it. It's the human experience. So then here's a third point that I wanted to land on. Church family gives direction to us. Church family gives counsel to us. And so that's why we're calling this two-week series The Counselor. 
It's not the counselor in the sense of the pastor counsels you to do everything. It's the counselor in the sense that all of us as believers should counsel other people and especially other believers to grow toward Christ. That's what needs to happen. And God has planned for that. And Paul writes about that in this, the next verse that, that we're going to cover. But, but here's the problem. Giving good counsel requires honesty and truth. And I got to tell you, honesty and truth are kind of in short supply today. I don't know if you've noticed that. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the news, but here recently, you know, Putin, who's invaded Ukraine, they don't have a free press. But even Putin shut down two news organizations that didn't say the party Russian line exactly the way he wanted it said. Did you catch that? I mean, they don't have free, it's already, Russian TV is just Russian propaganda, but some of them aren't doing it well enough, and he just cut two. And why? Because the hallmark of authoritarianism is to control what people can read and hear, and then when you control that, you can distort the truth. You can get people to believe whatever. Now, as we're pointing our finger over there at Russia, and by the way, Ukraine was a democracy, but not, you know, they didn't have a lot of freedom either, so let's not kid ourselves, but whatever. You know, better than Russia. But so anyway, I probably shouldn't have said that. But anyway, <laughs> when we are, when we're pointing the finger at Russia, this should all sound familiar to us because that exact same thing is happening in our country today. People are censoring and canceling and controlling the flow of information. Large corporations do that, but a lot of media does that as well. Remember, when you're watching something on the news, any news, you're hearing the story people want you to hear, and then you're, they're leading you on how you should interpret that. Does that make sense? It used to not be that way. I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. It used to be they would just say this and this and this happened. It looks like this. They don't say that that way anymore. That's happening. And that is threatening to a democracy. You've got to have freedom of self-expression in order for democracy to thrive. You just got to have it. You know, for years thinking about it, there's all this stuff and people are being canceled and this is off and this is off and you know you can't have a platform if you're saying this by the way a lot of that stuff not all of it but a lot of that stuff turned out to be true of course do you hear that no is there any apology no it's like oh we messed that up no but the science that's always been there finally gets looked at in a slightly different way and it's like, oh yeah, well actually that was correct from the very beginning that you heard a few people say that were canceled. I better get off that. But anyway, so this is the thing we see in our country, but here's the deal. Here's how it relates. Those are just illustrations about how the truth applies to our own life. Just like a democracy needs truth, we need truth personally in order to thrive in our own lives. And that's an issue for people in our culture because now we have a culture that basically says, I only, I, you know, if anybody comes to me and gives me truth that's negative, I push them away 
and they're not my friend anymore because they don't support me. Even when people come and warn them about uh, wrong behavior or self-destructive behavior, it's like, hey, back away, you can't judge me, and it shouldn't be done in a judgmental manner anyway, but it's just back away, and then they only surround themselves with friends who will support them in whatever they do, whether it's wrong or destructive, it doesn't matter, but that's not beneficial friendship. And we see this happening all around. God is telling us in the church it shouldn't be this way. In the church, when we are alongside a brother or sister in Christ and we're trying to follow Christ, and none of us do that perfectly, and then somebody sort of takes a, a right turn over here, that we who know them the best that we go to them because they'll know, well, you love me. Yeah, I love you. And I just want to tell you, look what you're doing. This is going to be bad for you. This is not going to work out well for you. you. You say you're following God, but you're doing the opposite of what God wants you to do. This is going to be destructive in your life. We have to do that. That's what Paul is going to explain to us right here next. Here's what he says. So what do we do? How do we deal with this? inside our church family. Well, what do we do? How do we help others? So Paul tells us how we can give and receive counsel. He tells us how to do it. Again, this is for all of us to give and all of us to receive. Here's what he says in verse 14, the next verse. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. All right, so he has four categories. He's saying four ways that Paul is telling this great church what they need to do. And we know that he's also telling us that we should do this. Four things we should do. Number one, admonish the unruly. We don't use the word admonish that much. It means warn. Warn is the closest word we have to that. So warn the unruly. But the word unruly is a little more complicated. Some of you might be following along in your Bibles, and it doesn't say unruly. It'll say idle. The, warn the idle or warn the lazy. And that's because within this compound word, there's two issues wrapped together. So it's difficult to translate into one word. It's basically Paul's talking about people who have the attitude that they're able-bodied, but they don't have to work to support themselves, to earn their own bread is what he would say. They, they're able-bodied, but they're not working to support themselves. And then when they're challenged on that, they have kind of a rebellious attitude of, hey, you do you, stay away from me, you know, kind of a deal. So it's, it's rebellious idleness. So they're just wrapped together. So every version has to kind of pick, okay, which way are we going with this? But if it's rebelliousness, you just have to know it's talking about rebelliousness in this area. And then if, if you're translating it, this is somebody that's lazy, you just have to know. But there's an attitude that goes along with that. Fair enough? I lost you. All right. So Paul has already told this church in this letter, in the prior chapter, he says, work with your hands to provide for yourselves rather than rely on other people. So if you're able-bodied, if you can get a job, get a job. 
That, that gives you dignity. That's what God wants you to do. There's no, no question about this. You know, follow through that. It will be, you know, God's saying it's the right thing, but it'll also be better for you. So, we, we warn those who are able-bodied but aren't working. Second thing, encourage the faint-hearted. So we know what encouragement means, means but the word faint-hearted, again, not a word we use a lot. It actually can mean discouraged. Somebody who's about to give up. Somebody's just like throwing in the towel. They can't take it anymore. A person like that. Literally, which is very fascinating to me. I actually learned this 30 years ago when I was in uh, grad school. It means small-souled. Encourage the small-souled people among you because they're the ones who easily get discouraged. Oh, I can't do it. I'm throwing in the towel. Can't do this anymore. You know, but, but hold it now. We all recognize that discouragement happens. Discouragement happens. Life happens. Life's messy. And sometimes when, it, when we're faced with that messiness, it's discouraging. You know, you may lose your job. That's discouraging. You may, worse, lose a loved one. That's discouraging, can be. And so we can be discouraged, but here's the deal. You know, an example again is, it's okay to not be okay when you're grieving. It's okay to not be okay. Just don't stay that way. We move out of that discouragement. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who come to us and say, hey, you seem really discouraged. What's going on? And we talk to them, and they point us in the right direction, which is always toward God, so we can give them the strength and courage. God gives us the strength and courage to face any obstacle, any issue. We can overcome any problem if we do it God's way. And not only that, we know that he's ultimately in control. That doesn't mean bad things don't happen to us. Bad things happen. The Bible's full of bad things happening to good, solid Christians. But he's ultimately in control. We can rest in that. That helps us move on. That helps us to not stay that way. So remember that. So that's the second thing. The third is we're told to help the weak. And, and we, in, in our Western world, we, we read this as help the physically weak, and that could be part of it, but primarily this is help the spiritually weak. And so a lot in Paul's writings, he's saying some people are, they're sort of caught up in tradition and not really following the word as much as they should, and, you know, they, they won't eat meat, sacrifice to idols, this, that, and the other thing, and he calls them, they're the weaker brothers. And so we want to help the weak, physically weak, and, and we do that all the time, but also spiritually weak. When you see somebody struggling in their faith, we want to come alongside of them and help them. We're actually called to do that. So we want to strengthen those who are spiritually weak or even spiritually lazy, which is a kind of a category some people can fall into. And so that's three. And then the fourth, how believers can respond to people dealing with specific issues. He's covered that. And now he broadens it because he's saying this, these people, these people, and these people. Now he says, hey, here's how we respond to all, but this is all with inside the church. He says, be patient with everyone in the church family. Be patient with everyone in the church family. And why would we need to be patient? Because a lot of people in our church are new converts, or, or this is how a lot of guys are, and I'll come back to this in a bit. 
you know, they're just not used to having somebody else come alongside them and say, hey, have you tried this? What do you think about this? Maybe we could do this. Can I help you in this? They're just not used to that. And, and they tend to just shy away from that. And so because of that, a lot of times it takes a lot longer. We have to keep coming to them. And they don't change maybe as fast as we think that they could change or should change. And so we need to be patient with them. And why? Just like God is patient with us when we got our problems. It's the same thing. Then in the next verse, Paul will enlarge this even more. Not just patient with everybody else in the church family, but now he's talking about everybody in general in verse 15. He says, see, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Not seeking vengeance is a common theme in the Bible. You know, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, all that stuff. Now, people will push back on that because they'll say, well, whoa, 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 what about those Old Testament passages that say eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? You know, they knock your eye out, you knock their eye out. They knock your tooth out, you knock their tooth out. What, what's that all about? Those retributive justice passages are actually intended in the Old Testament to limit vengeance. Somebody blinds you in one eye, you don't go kill them. If somebody knocks out your tooth, you don't slice their throat while they're sleeping the next night. You know, there's, it's limiting vengeance. And then as we limit vengeance, we realize that, hey, okay, God's saying, I am I, limited in how I can respond to this. I can't just go slice his throat. I can't kill him. Well, so I can knock his eye out. Well, hey, what God's saying is, that's the worth of your injury. So then they can negotiate, what's your, eye, what's your right eye worth to you? And they could come up with a way without doing any of that to say, there's a limit. We don't really do that in our country so much. On our country, actually in the Bible it says, you know, do justice to the poor. What people don't realize is the Bible also says, do justice to the rich. It says that. Do justice to the rich. Well, why is that? Well, just like in our culture, somebody spills, you know, old illustration, somebody spills coffee and they're in a jury and they got hurt. And then the jury says, well, McDonald's is rich. So they should pay a lot, maybe more than the injury's worth. They should pay all their coffee sales, you know, in the next year or whatever. And so that's going to be $5 million or whatever for spilling hot coffee. God's saying, no, don't do that either. It's justice. Do what's right, count the cost, figure it out. And that's why he's saying, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But uh, just, just kind of want to cover that. Seek good for all people, he's saying. We all have issues, life is messy, we all get it. It's okay not to be okay. Don't stay that way. But there's one thing I want to say before I close. And, and that's this, Fight Club. Some of you men knew this was coming. You're like, oh, man, I knew this was coming. Oh, didn't, or didn't see that coming. Whatever. You know, next Sunday we're starting Fight Club. Uh, there's a whole bunch of men in here that when they see a leather band like this, they know what that means. They know what that took. And so that's a 10-week challenge. If you're not familiar with it, a 10-week challenge. It's physical. It's spiritual. 
And it's a great discipleship tool for men. And I know men, when you hear discipleship, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to be sitting in a room with somebody with a Bible, and they're going to ask me what I think this means, and I'm going to not have even read it, and so I'm just going to have to wing it. And you know, that's, It's not the touchy-feely thing you're thinking. It takes three meetings. There's only, everybody, and, and I know everybody's saying, just like I would say, if somebody asked me to this, hey, I'm busy. Yeah, we're, we're busy. We get it. So we've structured Fight Club. There's only three meetings in the 10 weeks. There's a kickoff. That's next Sunday night. But we're going to lose an hour of sleep. Suck it up. <laughs> next, next Sunday night, there's a kickoff. And then in about four weeks after that, there's a mid-event. And that's important to be there because by then you'll be on, on squads, teams, and you want to represent with your team. And then there's a graduation, which is just good job. So that's all there is. But if you strike out, you're out. But I want to encourage you to jump in. And here's why. Some of you guys, some of you men, just like me, because I'm wired up this way too. I'm, I'm kind of a loner guy. Some of you, you don't even know what it would be like to be able to talk to another man about something going on in your life because you just have never done that. Totally get that. This is a way where you can sort of do that with very limited. It's all on an app called Band. It used to be Facebook. Now it's a different app called Band for groups. And so you don't have meetings, but you can interact a little bit when you want to, no pressure. And so that's how that happens. And so we got this down where you could probably do Fight Club in about 15 minutes a day for 10 weeks in a, a couple of meetings. First service, I got a little pushback on that. So maybe once in a while, it takes a little longer than 15, but you could basically do it then. But you should sign up. You should sign up. Some of you men, you don't even know what it's like to not even meet in a room with a guy, just type out and say, hey, brothers, pray for me about something I don't want to tell you, or pray for my marriage, or pray for one of my children. You don't even know, you've never even experienced that. Fight Club will do that for you. Kick off next Sunday night, 10 o'clock. We'll say it one more time, but then we stop talking about Fight Club because what happens in Fight Club that's right. So you won't hear anything more after next Sunday. Appreciate you guys being here. Um, you're amazing. I'm proud of you. I want us to keep going forth the way God wants us to go forth. Let's stand. We're going to have prayer. I, our music team's going to come out and kind of wrap us. Not wrap us, although they could do that, but wrap us up. Um, they're capable of just about anything. They're great. But anyway, let's pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your goodness. And God, we thank you, I thank you, we thank you for this church. Lord, a church full of people who want to make a difference in people's lives. Lord, help us to do that. Strengthen us to do that. Give us wisdom to do that. And Father, we know in order to do that, we need to stand on the truth of your word that never changes. Lord, in the years backwards which are a lot of years, and the years forward, let us never leave a biblical teaching because of culture pressure. Let's stay true to your word because your true word offends every culture. But it's what we need because it's truth. God, thank you for that. Help us to be who you want us to be. Help us to blast forward in these goals that we have over the next three years. And thank you for every single person standing in this room. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.